So what is the sufficiency of Scripture, and what is it sufficient for? It's going to be our topic for this morning, but before we do that, I want to sort of just back up and and share a little bit of, of my testimony. Um, you know, like Paul mentioned last week, he grew up in a home, I believe you said there was never really a time where you didn't know Christ or the love of Christ, which is my own testimony. Um, and a remarkable blessing that is to parents. If you're a parent in the room raising children, um, you know, there's often that feeling of, man, my testimony was kind of boring. Well, but no, it isn't. It's a remarkable, remarkable means of God's grace that he uh, placed you where you were, and in my case, with a family who loved the Lord. But uh, that being said, kind of growing up in church and being surrounded by the word, uh, I know so much of it was soaked into my heart and mind. And I know that so much of it was bearing fruit in my life um, as I uh, was a Christian. I believe I was Christian from, you know, uh, I was brought up in a Baptist background, so baptized at age six. I remember telling my uh, first grade class, Miss McGrath's class, about my baptism and my profession of Christ. And I got up to do show and tell, and that was my show and tell for the week. It was, uh, uh, you know, that I was believing in Jesus and that I wanted to follow Christ, which was which is great, and I genuinely look back at that time and see fruit in my life. One of the things I want to share with you, though, is that um, as I progressed and, and grew in a good church, the same church pretty much my whole um, young adult life until I left for, for, for school um, and marriage, was that I just sort of was adopted by uh, a friend. Many of you met Gabe, um, who came here to, to share part of my um, what do we call it? And it wasn't ordination, it was installation. But the reason why I'm sharing this piece with you is because my relationship to God's Word changed through the means of discipleship and through the means of a man who knew the sufficiency of Scripture in a way that I did not. And what he began to do in my life was to challenge me on the Word, to relook at things that I thought was just mere information about God, Things that I thought were instructive uh, about my life, but it, it didn't really apply to me. It hadn't landed in home um, and changed my thinking about God into obedience. And that was what his discipleship began to do. Was It was a true ministry of using the word, wielding it as um, food and strength and energy like the psalm says right the man who is who loves the law of the lord is planted uh by the river and he right his leaves do not wither in season or out of season you're strengthened you're you're bearing fruit in the word and that's what began to happen in my relationship with gabe and he also did that through and this is going to be important through today's topic as well is through the use of good books so books that would challenge my thinking, that would push me back to Scripture, that would raise good questions that I had never thought of before. And I had a great church, and maybe they did these things, and I just hadn't seen it quite yet. But through that friendship, it was a, a challenge to me that provoked so many provocative questions and pushed me so much back into the Word. And what I found there was vitality, answers to my questions. It was no longer just a a part of my being, and I could find truth and information elsewhere, it was sufficient for me. Uh, all of my life ahead of me, all of the questions, death, purpose, existence, uh, getting shame away, assurance of pardon was, was there, sort of brought to the fore through this friendship. It was wonderful. So if you can be that kind of friend for somebody, you should. 
right? But that's how the scripture works. And so that pushed me into seminary and to a couple of Bible degrees and to um, apprenticing at, at a church for, for quite some time. So that's how I'm here today, sort of the short version of that. But all in all, it is the sufficiency of Scripture, and it's a large part of my testimony, and I'm sure that it's a large part of your own. The question for this morning, though, is what, uh, what is the uh, Scripture sufficient for, and why are we making such a big deal about this in the inquirer's class? There's a funny thing that's going to happen between inquire and inquiry that's going to happen and make me pause uh, as I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable multiple times. Um, so let's talk about sufficiency of Scripture. Everybody got their Scripture reading? Got their notes and different things? Go ahead and turn over to those. and would be great. We believe, a covenant of grace, in the sufficiency of Scripture. And it's a principle that we organize all of their ministries around. We believe that the Scriptures are sufficient for preaching, as we uh, summed up that one of the bulk of our ministries here is a preached word, a word applied to our lives. In teaching, like in Sunday school and other ministries of the church, the word is sufficient. In singing, so a lot of times when we sing, we are singing truths that are found in the scriptures. Counseling, the different realities, pains, and trials, and encouragements in our lives. We are people who go back to the scriptures and in our vision of what this church is and why we exist here and why would we start a new church in the Bible Belt in the heart of Atlanta? It's because the scriptures, not us, not our ideas, not our plans are sufficient, but because the scriptures are sufficient, which doesn't do a whole lot if we don't know what that means. So let's define what sufficiency of Scripture means, and let's come back afterwards to how it applies here at Covenant of Grace. Okay? What is the sufficiency? That'll also happen a lot. The sufficiency of Scripture. How do the Scriptures identify themselves? So what does the Scripture even sort of declare about themselves and what's going on? Who has 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16? Is that you? All right, go ahead and read it for us. But as for you... Continuing in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right. Amen. Hold that in your heart and your mind for a minute as I ask this question. What is scripture sufficient to do. Anybody? From reproof, correction, training in righteousness, mm-hmm. every good work. Yeah. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. All scripture is God breathed. It's God breathed. So it is the very um, it is it is God making his appeal to us, revealing who He is. Not just some of the Scriptures, but all of them. Which is why we preach, believing in the sufficiency of Scripture, verse by verse. 
Try not to skip them. The ones that we like, we preach. The ones we don't like, we don't preach. The ones that we think in 1 Corinthians about food laws, like today in chapter 8, we preach. Because in them we see who God is. But what else? There's a list of things that Scripture is sufficient for, but I think there's a couple other things mentioned. It's to make you wise for salvation. Equipped for every good work. So when we say Scripture is sufficient, what we are paying attention to is we are paying attention to that it is sufficient to do the task with which it says it's going to accomplish. Does that make sense? It says all of this Scripture is to equip you for salvation and every good work. Joel Beakey defines the sufficiency of Scripture this way. The doctrine of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures declares that everything necessary, listen to this, for salvation and spiritual life is taught in the Bible. Everything necessary for salvation and spiritual life is taught in the Bible. The Bible's not a, a cookbook, right, where we turn to find you know, recipes. It's not a, a manual for how to put together a toaster or Ikea furniture. But it is sufficient for everything necessary for saving faith in spiritual life. So when the church says, hey, look, we preach Scripture, and we're going to get to sola scriptura, which is more on the authority piece in another lesson uh, in this class, Today we're going to merely talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and what it is sufficient for. And it is sufficient for all those things that are necessary for salvation and to live a spiritual life. That is, if, you, if, if we're seeking salvation as a church, we're proclaiming the gospel of Christ, and we're going to equip the saints for every good work, what tool are we going to lean on? Some Scripture and some philosophy and some church authority and some other things? No. We believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures as the final authority to equip us for every good work. The power comes through hearing, right? And hearing the word of God, Romans 10 says. Who's got Isaiah 55? Isaiah 55. Go ahead, Jason. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Yes. As God sends out his word, it will accomplish his purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which he sent it. Uh, For me, who gets to stand up and preach? Remarkable. Right. Uh, as we plan the liturgy, right, uh, one of the things we're going to rejoice in today at the family meeting is how many verses that we've uh, we've heard or seen as a congregation through the liturgy and through the preaching of scriptures. We believe in the sufficiency, not just uh, of an abstract principle of God's words on a page in the story of God, but that the very uh, theognustos, right, the God-breathed word, is accomplishing. Exactly what he wants it to accomplish. And it's a kind of a view on God's sovereignty, as if um, he's in heaven 
sort of nervous. You ever thought about God in heaven kind of nervous? I, I just wish that things would go my way or uh, he, he, God never sweats, right? He's never just perspiring because he's frustrated or, or fatigued. No, what he declares happens. He upholds the world by the word of his power. In the beginning it was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And as we take hold of the scriptures, we, we have a, a sort of an embarrassment of riches, right? In that we have books and commentaries, and, and we have the very authority of God that pierces the division between uh, bone and marrow, and we don't put it among other authorities, we don't say that it is a very good tool and it can give illustrations of other principles and we can sort of weave into sermons other, uh, other things that we believe will do the same amount of heavy lifting. No, we put all of the weight on the scriptures for salvation and for training in righteousness. Equipping the man for every good work comes from God's word. So it does beg the question, it raises questions of how do we view other... Yeah, yeah authorities or how do we view other insights or commentaries or theologians um, and that will be a question we'll we'll address some today and a little bit more when we get to sola scriptura Austin. question on the within just scripture itself are there are there tiers like is all of scripture equal or are the red letter words the most valuable and useful and then the new testament and then the old testament Right. And then the genealogies. Yeah. Scripture says Scripture says all of Scripture. Right. And, and Jesus, uh, we're going to look at this a little bit more in just a minute, but uh, time and time again, he says, have you not read? It's The standard is, have you not read, is that all Scripture is profitable for training and correction. So we don't highlight uh, uh, in many the sort of a modern shift in thinking, particularly around sexual issues right now, is to pit the words of Jesus against Paul and the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And Scripture itself, so being a student of Scripture itself, does not give you the freedom to do that. All right, It does not put one authority based on time or prophetic voice over the other. So 40 different authors written over 1,500 years proclaiming the same revelation, an unfolding covenant of grace fulfilled in Jesus Christ, sufficient for salvation and to equip us for every good work. So faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10. So John Frame, a theologian who's thought about these things quite a bit, writes, writes an interesting little paragraph. Let me read this to you. Christians sometimes say that Scripture is sufficient for religion, or maybe preaching or theology, but not so much for things such as auto repair or plumbing or animal husbandry, dentistry, and of course, many argue that it's not sufficient for science or philosophy or even ethics. But that is to miss an important point. Certainly, Scripture contains more specific information relevant to theology than to dentistry. We know that. But sufficiency in the present context is not sufficiency of specific information, but sufficiency of divine words. Scripture contains divine words sufficient for all of life. It has all the divine words that a plumber needs and all the divine words that a theologian needs. 
So it is just as sufficient for plumbing as it is for theology. And in that sense, it is sufficient for science and ethics as well. That's a remarkable quote. And he's, notice what he's not saying. Right? He, he's not saying, well, actually, it really is a how-to manual for the plumber, and it really is a how-to manual for the surgeon. He's not saying that. But it is sufficient for what God wants it to be to that surgeon and to that plumber. And I would even kind of press the point a little bit. It might not be a how-to manual for the surgeon on how to do a particular surgery, but it absolutely informs why we need a surgeon and lives to be saved. Does that make sense? It might not be the specific um, ruling on a court case, but it absolutely is the standard of justice. It's sufficient for all of us. It is sufficient for all of life. Proverbs 16.9, the Bible is sufficient to instruct us and make us the right kind of people. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. What are some, what are some thoughts we can think about here um, in choosing different paths in life? How do we to use the Bible when we have questions of who should I marry? What job should I take? Should I move across the country? What do you pause and I'll ask that as a as a question here. How does God's word instruct us with questions like that? Hey, good morning. Good to see you. Such a great question. Scripture is sufficient for everything God has to say in the matter. So you if you want to move across the country. And moving across the country in your situation doesn't violate any law or wise principle that God has instructed you. You don't have to feel this pressure that I think a lot of us feel to say, God told me to move to California, or I feel God leading me to California. All you have to say is, I want to move to California, and the scriptures seem to say it's lawful. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, can you do that honestly? Can you do it in faith? Can you do it with integrity? Can you follow the Lord in California? Breaking some obligation. Right. And so the scriptures are sufficient to think through those things. And what what tends to happen, or let me let me ask this question. What what are some dynamics, what are some ethical dilemmas or problems with the scriptures that, that come up when these types of questions arise? Can I do this or can I do that? And you look in the Bible and the answer is not there can feel like the scriptures are not sufficient. We can begin to address the scriptures as if they're not sufficient. And it would pressurize us to look like some traditions sort of encourage elsewhere. We need to look to another authority. And it often becomes, with those types of questions, an inside nudge, a feeling, uh, a a voice, a, a word from God, because we want that specific, articulate answer. The scriptures are sufficient to do what God has them to do, right? Not your every whim in the morning. It is not going to to tell you exactly what to do today, but it is going to tell you the type of person that you need to be today. That make sense? And that's what the scriptures are sufficient for, for life in godliness and salvation. The Belgic Confession... That's a good way to start a transition. (laughs) Let me read this. It's, It's quite good. Slightly lengthy. Not too bad. 
the good substance. This is how theologians, um, groups of theologians, have thought about this question in the past. This is sort of their best uh, shot at some of the answers. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God, and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. Four, since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the Holy Scriptures. Nay, though it were an angel from heaven, as the apostle Apostle Paul saith, for since it is... um, for since it is forbidden to add unto or take away anything from the word of God, it does thereby evidently appear that the doctrine, therefore, is most perfect and complete in all respects. Neither do we consider of equal value any writing of men, however holy these men may have been, with those divine scriptures. Nor ought we to consider custom with a great multitude of antiquity or succession of times and persons or councils, decrees, or statutes, as the equal of value with the truth of God. For the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars, and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore we reject with all of our heart whatsoever whatsoever does not agree, agree with the infallible rule which the apostles have taught us, saying, Try the spirits, whether they are of God. Likewise, if there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine... Receive them not into your house. Some really, really wonderful stuff there. They're getting into another aspect of the sufficiency of Scripture, and that is, um, is there benefit that can come to us from outside of the Scriptures, and how authoritative are those benefits? So theologians, in Paul's words, and as the confession reminds us, even angels, right, what are they saying? They, they, they can't say anything to us. We plug our ears. We can't hear anything but scriptures. Well, no, it's not quite saying that. But it is applying to us a question about how authoritative those other voices are to answer that question of the sufficiency of scripture. What grounds are we on with sufficiency? Shaky grounds? It might equip us. It might be useful for salvation. Or is it completely solid and the church stands on which is why we're having this class. This is because what we believe at Covenant of Grace is that we stand on a sufficient scripture. Um, so we can say that a church or a tradition is wrong if it discords with scripture. We can say that a pope is wrong. We can say that a tradition or a book or a theologian is wrong. But we cannot say, and this church does not say, that the scriptures are wrong. We believe in a sufficient and an infallible scripture. Let me, uh, let me give you a couple of perspectives just for your edification um, as, as people think through these things. There's sort of four perspectives on the sufficiency of Scripture. One would be um, a phrase called biblicism. So, biblicism, um, which is a somewhat slippery to define, but often it is a caricature in its definition in that it is a, a sort of a naive belief that all we need is just the Bible. What I mean by that is that um, if there are any voices that sort of speak like a commentator or even a pastor or a theologian to uh, uh, illuminate or elucidate a scripture, we, they kind of just say, no, we just, we just have the Bible. 
And it can be a naive biblicism in the sense that um, you can see all these kind of goofy publications sometimes about like certain biblical diets and certain biblical things that are verses of Scripture ripped out of their context to be completely interpreted however the reader wants it to be. Okay, And they call that pervasive interpretive pluralism. Uh, it's kind of a mouthful, but you can just call it PIP for short. Um, pervasive interpretive pluralism in that whoever has a Bible in their biblicism looks at the text and says, this is what I think it means, and there we go. Right? So that is sort of a naive biblicism. A biblicism is good in the sense that if we applied it to sufficiency of Scripture, that would be just fine. Most of the time it's not. And in sort of the conversation around um, traditional views of Scripture, this is called Tradition Zero. Right? Tradition Zero, which is everyone is an interpreter to their own. Everyone is their own interpreter. Now, Tradition One... On Tradition Zero, how do we know that that's not right? How do we know that biblicism is wrong? So, part of that, as an example of that, would be... Um, Jesus saying, you have heard it said, or the Corinthians kind of saying, hey, you know, wasn't this verse in its isolation, right? And scripture comes back and informs a, a, a narrow view of scripture with a fuller interpretation. So we learn to interpret scripture. Excellent. That's right. Scripture. That's we learn. And we're almost going to get there. That's right. But we learn to in- interpret scripture from scripture not nearly yanking it from its context and interpreting it in our own. Um, I pick because I think I think that is a really, really common approach to Scripture among believers, oh, yeah. even in faithful churches. Absolutely. Me sitting down with the Bible, if I have a verse and I can tell you this is what this verse means to me, that is above all sorts of approach. Right. Yeah. And that's... Just not what scripture says. Right. And who are you? Mm-hmm. Because this gets to an interesting point in a church like ours. Well, who, who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? We don't have a magisterium. We don't have a pope. We don't have, you know, these guides that have this infallible interpretation. We believe in the sufficiency of scripture. And am I not reading scripture? But the thing you have to notice there is that is their personal interpretation. And so Scripture does something really unique. We're gonna I'm gonna get to in just a second. Um, so let me let me give the four sort of views of the tradition. That would be tradition zero. Tradition one would be more of the historic, so think of church fathers, and the sort of recaptured, or what was the uh, attempt to recapture in the Reformation, which would be called tradition one. And that is that um, Scripture is to be taken as the final authority and as theologians or church fathers or commentators um, uh, wrestle through Scriptures and and creeds and councils, they are to um, help and bolster and make clear what is confusing and situate us in the context, but only so much as the final authority rests on the scriptures. And that's much of what we do through preaching and through this class as I read a quote to you that might be from a theologian that's sort of bringing more light or clarity. They're only bringing that light or clarity as much as they point back to the scriptures as their authority. Instead of pointing to themselves as the 
authority. Does that make sense? So that's sort of tradition one, which the reformers wanted to recapture. They loved the church fathers, and they loved the church fathers because the church fathers loved the scriptures. Right? So that's a pretty common theme um, in their attempt to reform the Catholic Church, which would be tradition Two, tradition two is more of a situated magisterium, someone who's saying, I have um, sort of the authentic interpretation of the text, and it lies within the church. And uh, there have been multiple Catholic, in particular, councils that have defined the scriptures along with church tradition and in the, uh, in the interpretation of the Pope as infallible. Right, So they hold essentially the keys to final interpretation. If someone has a question, instead of it being biblicism and a personal um, conviction and a personal interpretation, they can say, no, it's actually the correct version would be X, Y, or Z. And I have the authority to declare that. Tradition three, so there's four, remember, it's zero, one, two, three, four, uh, zero, one, two, three, is more of a contemporary view which is that truth is revealed and sufficiency is found in communal interpretation. Communal interpretation. That is, as your community exists, maybe in time, so we are postmodern readers of Scripture, or post-liberal, or we're Western readers or Eastern readers, and we can find truth in interpretation in our context. And then that breaks down into multiple small communities uh, of different beliefs and different churches and different denominations who say, well, because we read this text in light of our circumstance and community, we find truth and authority here. And does this make sense? So given those views, which one seems right? I hope that you would see is that we find sufficiency in the scriptures. But even logically, to press the point, Men are fallible. Communities change. Popes are historically and frequently very, very wrong and contradict themselves. So is our community. And even more so, uh, Tradition Zero, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, right? acknowledge the Lord. We are often deceived ourselves. We need help. But the authority is not to find it in someone else or in ourselves or in our community. The authority is that the scriptures are sufficient to reveal God to us. And they, they, they are. It's what scripture declares of itself, that it is sufficient for those, for such a task. Um, Westminster Confession. Here's how it says it. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves. This gets to a little bit of question of, some things are difficult to read. Right? So what do you do? Nor are they alike clear unto all. Yet, those things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. That is to say that the Reformers uh, had had a word for this, and it was the perspicuity of Scripture, which is a $6 word for saying clarity. The Scriptures 
are clear in all of their sufficiency to equip us and to uh, do the work of salvation. The scriptures are not obtuse or obscure. They can be known. What do we know of scripture? Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise those who are simple. Making wise those who are simple. Psalm 119, 130. A great, longest chapter in the Bible, but a great ode to the law of the Lord and the words of God. The unfolding of your word gives light and it imparts understanding to the simple. One of the most remarkable things is that children, it's one of the things that we believe, that children can understand the scriptures. The scripture is clear and sufficient to, to do the work which God would have of it. John uh, Wycliffe, um, who was translating the Bible into English, uh, ultimately persecuted in prison um, for doing such a task, uh, made the claim that the plowboy in the field, through his English translation of the Bible, would be more informed of Scripture than the Pope. That was his claim. That I'm, I'm going to make this scripture be able to be read by all. And when those plowboys get a hold of this scripture, they're going to know more about God than the Pope does. Right? That's sort of his claim. The scriptures are not such a learned book. The context is not so far removed. The people are not so different as if that we cannot understand it. Right? Every week we come in and we preach difficult sometimes tasks. Today is about food laws in Corinth. Right? That's a difficult sort of scenario that's not, you know, very common for us. And yet, and what I hope my sermon's ambition today is, is that we are equipped. We see more of who God is. We see more of, of what it means to be called into the family of God and how it impacts our life as Christians. I mean, the word is sufficient for this task. It's not just an outline of bullet points of, of how to do Christianity. It is God's revealed word to us with all of its fl- ugly sins and the lives of biographies of people that we've been studying the last few weeks with all of its uh, beautiful poetry and songs and stories and prophecy. It's God's breathed word to us. Sufficient. Scripture. So this is Scripture defending this principle. There's a couple of, of ways that Scripture itself begins to remind us that it is sufficient. Who has Luke 16? Can I give that out to anybody? For some reason, I think I didn't. Luke 16, 26 through 31. This is the rich man and Lazarus. Let me read this to you. Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, and it's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus kind of telling this story. And in that story, there's this question about authority. And that the man says, Send Lazarus to go warn my family because people won't believe unless they kind of see this miraculous work of God. And he said they have 
the ordinary means of grace. They have God's word. They have Abraham and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. And, and even, even there, sufficient though it is, you know, in this context, their heart would be hardened. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus says in Matthew 12 and Matthew 19, Matthew 21 and Matthew 22, he often starts in and launches into a teaching by saying, have you not read? What is he saying by saying that? He's saying this thing that I'm clarifying or highlighting was already here. This is how we do theology. This is how we see it in light of Scripture interpreting Scripture, bearing light on other texts, and the clear text shining light sometimes on a text that's a little less clear. When Jesus criticizes the Sadducees because they didn't believe there would be a resurrection, his rebuke is telling, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures or the power of God. He used to ask them there, have you not read? Who's got Acts 8? We're kind of nearing the end here. Is that you, Matt? I got it. Okay, let's take this section of Scripture and let's listen closely. I'm going to try to ask you some questions of it. But I think it is very instructive on the case of authority and uh, sufficiency. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, Acts 8, 26 to 36. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Nice. Very cool. Very, very unique situation. What is Philip's role in this story? He's a teacher. That's right. What is Philip's authority as a teacher? His big brain. His big brain. His office. Since it says beginning with the scriptures. Beginning with the scriptures. Yeah. It's a couple of a couple of great things would happen if we paused and had the time this morning to kind of go through this section of Scripture. It, it brings up questions of clarity, because here you have this man reading this text, and he's, he's not clear. What does it mean? How, how do I make sense of this? Um, we have questions of authority and, and what Philip's role is, and some traditions would say Philip's sort of acting as uh, he's the authority, right? And that's exactly why, because you have people who will read the scriptures of their own, and they can't make sense of it, and you, you have to have somebody coming in there, and, and to a degree that's true. 
And yet, the scripture presses us further. It does not leave us hanging on what he does as a teacher, where his authority is wielded, and what it is sufficient to do. He goes, it says, starting with the scriptures, he goes back, and he, he is a helper. That's that tradition one. And there are aids, there are helps, but they're only helps as they point back to scripture. Right, they're only aids as they point back to the authoritative text and says, well, actually, brother, I can be a servant to you and a guide. But it's the scriptures that are sufficient for salvation. Do you, have you not read? Right. And so he's pointing him back and bringing in the words here. What a remarkable, remarkable thing. Any questions on that story? Any thoughts on that story? I have two thoughts. You have two thoughts? Just first. No, go for it. I, I never noticed in that story. Um, he can't get his questions answered unless the Spirit is at work. So the story yeah. is quick to tell us that the Spirit is at work in bringing illumination in that situation. And he thinks the text is too complicated for him to understand. How can I unless somebody helps me? But he does have some understanding because you can tell in his question, he thinks this text is pointing to someone else. Yeah. And what he's really asking is to whom were the prophets speaking? Yeah. I, it, yeah, really cool. Very, very cool. Uh, and Jesus makes similar remarks, right? He's standing before them, and look, if you knew, if you knew the Father, you'd know me. That's John 8. And he's, you know, he's, look, they're saying, hey, we, Abraham is our father. We worship the one God. He said, look, if you really knew them, if you really knew your Bibles, you, you'd recognize me in a heartbeat, right? Those who recognize them, you know, John the Baptist and uh, the other characters who who saw Christ for who he is, they, they are recognizing that very question, right, that the scripture draws out. I think um, it's important for our evangelism, too, because mm-hmm. we should not be afraid of asking unbelievers to read the scriptures. Oh, they're too complicated, or you really need to know the backstory. Yeah. If the spirit is at work, the scriptures will prompt the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard a great illustration uh, of this one time, and uh, I forgot to write this down, so let's see if I can remember it. But they were saying if... Um, Say a man comes up behind you, you know, with a, with a gun up to your back and says, you know, your money or your life. And the guy says, well, I don't believe in guns. And then the guy with the gun says, oh, I'm sorry, I <laughs> put my gun down, right? At that point, who doesn't believe in, in guns? It's the guy holding the gun, right? So in evangelism, right, doing work with the scriptures, you know, someone says, hey, look, you can keep telling me about Jesus and you can keep quoting scripture to me all you want, but I don't believe in your scriptures. Right? Well, it's funny that you say that because right here in Romans 1, it, <laughs> yeah, you, you go back to the scriptures, right? Who doesn't believe in the scriptures at that point? Right? It's the person who believes that the, suffic- the sufficiency of salvation comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. That's not to say that it's the only thing we say is we just quote scripture. We can't bring any of our own language or any sentence structure outside of the Bible. It just means that the only authoritative word is God's word as it is delivered by us through preaching and teaching and evangelism. But it's not us who save. It's not our rhetoric. It kind of goes back to 1 Corinthians, right? Apollos was so rhetorically eloquent, and some of the other guys were, were sharp in their theology, or they wanted to go to the Apostle Paul or the authority of Jesus. But Paul reminds that, look, it's we're servants and stewards of the mysteries of the gospel. 
We, we, it's, it's the euangelion. The gospel, we forget sometimes, is message. It means good news. Good news for, of what? Good news of Jesus. Right? It's good news of Jesus. Kevin DeYoung, good way to end. If authority is the liberal problem, and clarity the postmodern problem, and necessity the problem for atheists and agnostics, then sufficiency is the attribute most quickly doubted by rank-and-file church-going Christians. We can say all the right things about the Bible, and even read it regularly, but when life gets difficult, or just a bit boring, we look for new words, new revelation, new experiences to bring us closer to God, or interpret things completely on our own, unique and uh, bespoke uh, interpretations of Scripture that often they will, they will run counter to other scriptures. Right? The scriptures themselves accord with one another. As we become students of the word, right, it becomes kind of this fractal. That's, that's, and that's why I mentioned 40 different authors, 1,500 years, that's all working together to not have us believe contradictory things. No, they're all pointing us in the whole counsel of God to equip us for every good work. It's remarkable. So we rejoice in the word, a covenant of grace. As you consider, right, the inquirer's class and what the vision is, or if you're a member and just thinking about, again, as we kind of go through this routine and we come and we do the liturgy and we sing these songs and we preach the word and we have words kind of posted everywhere, scripture, why? It's because we rejoice in a ministry of the word. It's why this church exists, is to uh, be a sufficient beacon of light, beacon of hope in this city, because we wield the word, right? We preach it, we declare it, we, we sing it, we celebrate it, we're ministered to it by it and counseled by it, and it's healing us, repairing us, restoring our, our lives to God. We have a, uh, Paul says, a ministry of reconciliation through the word, and it reconciles not only uh, God to man, but also man and man, right? Restoring lives and homes as well. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Matthew 7. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119. Let me close with this one. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward.